This is Dr. Kara Shepard, and you're listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Shepherd here with Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. Um, I had thought I was going to have a chance to record at home yesterday, but I got called out to see a goat and didn't have a chance to record, so I'm in the truck and just wanted to get some stuff out while I was thinking about it on my way to work this morning. Um, So I'm going to talk kind of about a a few different things today and um, kind of a grab bag. First thing I'm going to talk about is just biosecurity in general. I've gotten a a good number of questions about this, mostly from new goat owners um, this season. So just wanted to kind of say a few general statements about it and explain a little bit about the idea and the general testing and things like that. Um, And then I got a listener question via email, which I was super excited about. Uh, So I'm going to address that. And... And then I'm going to tell you about something crazy that happened. Well, I guess it wasn't too crazy. Like, it wasn't, like, driving Pighead around because of being scared of rabies crazy. But it <laughs> was a little bit nerve-wracking for a moment, and it was on the in our dairy this morning. So um, it was just would have been an expensive and inconvenient thing to have to fix, but it wasn't that bad. So, uh, biosecurity. Uh, people, a lot of goat breeders that I work with and uh, that are kind of known online, have a social media presence or have um, a herd that is, has a herd name that is fairly well known. Maybe they show and win all the blue ribbons or they go to nationals and they do well or they're in the spotlight sale or what have you. Um, And there's a fair number of breeders that have like a pretty significant social media presence and following online and I think that's great promote the goat um but I I talk with a lot of new goat owners who are learning about the the process of owning goats and they hear these uh, larger well-known breeders talk about biosecurity testing and then they feel like they want to do that which I think is great it's absolutely appropriate to test your goats for infectious diseases and I fully support that Uh, but there's some confusion about what that entails and what should I be testing for and when should I test and who gets tested and so on. So most typically um, people talk about biosecurity screening for goats and these are often like I said show herds or um, they could be pets, uh, but they're often animals that aren't in a commercial food production situation, so they may not be part of a licensed dairy. Um, Not to say that they, you know, their owners don't make 
products from their milk, but I actually know at least one dairy who has some pretty nice goats and they make a lot of milk and their milk just gets dumped out on the manure pile because she's breeding for show and production and she's not, you know, once the babies are not drinking the milk, there's no, no way that her family could handle it all. So, um, that's, there's two different kinds of paths of testing. One is your kind of typical small ruminant biosecurity, and then you can talk about dairy biosecurity, which has to do with zoonotic diseases, which are diseases that can be passed between animals and humans. Uh, so most commonly people talk about biosecurity screening for goats or sheep, and they're talking about testing for CAE, which is caprine arthritis encephalitis, uh, CL, which is, which is caseous lymph adenitis, um, or, and yonis. Uh, so the, those are kind of the big three, and they're infectious diseases which affect small ruminants, uh, in sheep, the CAE component is also known as OPP, um, ovine pleuronemonia, uh, but there's actually some evidence now that that whole CAE OPP thing could be considered uh, small ruminant lentivirus. So potentially those two species could be um, put each other at risk. For example, if you have an OPP positive sheep and it is exposing uh, goats, it's exposed to goats in a way that uh, bodily fluids could be exchanged, you potentially could have that goat be infected with that lentivirus. Um, for each of these diseases, CAE, CL, and Yonis, I'm going to have a separate podcast to talk about each one of those. Uh, talking about those all at once would be a really big, long podcast and my mouth would get tired and I would lose my train of thought without some good notes. So that's going to be one that I can't do in the truck. But uh, in general, people talk about small ruminant or goat biosecurity screening. We're talking about CAE, CL, Yonis. When I test my own animals um, or I test clients, I send these to the Washington State uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab because they have a nice little package that does all of those together. And it's the most economically uh, feasible way for everybody to do it. I can test for uh, CAE and Yonis at the state lab, and it's less expensive, but then you have to send a different sample to Washington for CL, and by the time you ship it and all that stuff, it's not you're not saving any money that way. Um, and Washington's great. They have a fast turnaround. They have really helpful people on staff, and uh, I've had really good experiences with them. So the question I often get about biosecurity screening is, when do I do this, and how often do I do it? I think a good rule of thumb for when to biosecurity test is... I, I, I mean, ideally, if you're buying a new animal, uh, you can see that animal's herd's biosecurity paperwork. And the breeder should not have any qualms about showing that to you. Um, they should be happy to report that their whole 
group of animals is negative for those things. These are all diseases that are way easier to just keep out of your herd to begin with than to deal with once they're on your property. Um, and like I said, they're infectious between animals. So these aren't necessarily going to cause a problem for humans, though there is some evidence suggesting that there may be a link between Yoni's and Crohn's disease in humans, uh, which I'll also talk about when I talk about Yoni's in another episode. Uh, but this is mostly a, a herd health concern at the level of the animal. Animals that have these diseases are going to be they're like it's going to be a quality of life issue for them for different reasons depending on the different diseases but basically you're going to be looking at a shorter lifespan uh, so making sure that you don't bring these in to start with is the ideal so if you buy a group of animals uh, and you can see that those test results were negative to begin with that's great i think it's very reasonable if you're starting off new to retest that group of animals after they've been at your property for six months or a year and then I absolutely recommend testing and quarantining any new animal before integrating it into your herd uh, and then repeating a test in six months to a year. Now, the question of when do I, do I have to do this every year, when do I do this again, is, is always is always a question as well. Um, and there's, there's no clear-cut answer for it because everybody does something different with their herd. Probably the most common thing and what people tend to do because it's what they see the big show herds do is that they test annually, which is great. That's fine. Um, if you are financially able to test annually and you want to test annually, that's absolutely an excellent standard to have. Um, people who show their animals regularly, uh, my, my clients who have show animals and go to multiple shows throughout the season, they're potentially putting those animals at risk for exposure to those diseases. So they test annually. And often I'll see these guys in the spring after everybody's kitted out and the sh before the show season has started and we pull blood and we send it and then they're good to go. They have a clean test so they can sell their kids under a clean test that's recent. And that's great. Um, and the next question is who needs to be tested? So if you're starting off with... Say you've got a group of animals and you've never tested them and there's some kids on the ground and there's mature does and milk and some bucks and things like that. You know, you've got a, a variety of ages and life stages in your group. I always recommend to start by testing the mature animals. So definitely all the adult does and milk, all the bucks and if there's any like dry yearlings or other dry adult does hanging around, they absolutely should be tested as well. Testing for CAE in particular, you want to wait until the animal is at least six months old because you can have false positive results if there's maternal antibodies. Again, can talk more about that on the CAE episode. Uh, but my kind of rule of thumb when trying to establish a baseline biosecurity protocol for a herd is start by testing all the mature animals. 
And then for frequency of testing, if you have all these mature animals and they're not going anywhere and you're not bringing animals in, like, you don't absolutely need to test every year. You just, you don't have to do it. Um, the, there's no way for any of those diseases to just spontaneously generate. They have to come from somewhere. Most commonly what happens is an, an animal that is positive comes into a herd and then can infect the rest of the herd. Uh, some things like CL um, and yonis are kind of easily transmitted from the infectious material. So for CL, it would be the pus from abscesses. And from yonis, it would be fecal material. So if you are visiting other farms, it's good to practice good biosecurity, wash your hands, wear like disposable booties or rubber boots that can be scrubbed, um, change your clothes when you get home. When I go to farm calls, I always wear coveralls, I wear rubber boots that I scrub with chlorhexidine between each farm call, and uh, when I get home, I change my clothes before I handle my own animals. So, just things to consider to minimize the risk to your own animals. Other testing for dairy, uh, and I, we'll talk about this more on another podcast and I recommend this if people are if you're going to drink your own raw milk I think it's an excellent idea to test for diseases that potentially can affect human health and these are TB and brucellosis so brucellosis is a blood test uh, TB is an intradermal test and it's just good to know that if you're drinking your milk and your family's drinking your milk it's nice to know that you're not drinking milk that could potentially make anybody sick. Um, if you're a licensed dairy, you probably already know that these tests need to be done. Uh, if you're making an unpasteurized product or selling raw milk, which is legal in Maine, uh, um, that testing needs to be done on a scheduled basis from the state, uh, the state regulations. And whenever you have new animals come in, they need to be tested. So two different kind of realms of testing, the state, uh, the state and or the uh, FDA slash USDA, if you're a grade A operation, doesn't really care if your animals have CAE, CL, or Yonis because there's not a human health concern with those. There certainly is a production concern with those. Um, and for your business to be profitable, you want to have healthy animals and not be dealing with those diseases. But uh, those testings are not required for dairy purposes, for human health, for human consumption. So that's biosecurity. Um, and I got an email. I'm going to go on to my second little grab bag part of this podcast. Like I said, I got an email from a listener, which was super exciting. And it's like, yay, somebody's listening to my podcast and has a question. Awesome. So uh, the question was about uh, fecal fecal egg count submission that they had sent to a lab. And... They got it back, and I love doing fecal egg counts. I think it's great. I think we shouldn't be deworming things unless we have to. Uh, the fecal came back to the owner with, uh, I think he said, no, didn't need to deworm, low, uh, low egg counts, but had a comment, which was four plus entamoeba cysts. And he was like, what is that? Do I need to worry about it? Do I need to treat it? What's going on there? 
And this is a question actually that comes up amongst veterinarians, not infrequently. And I've seen a lot of, you know, just on our, we have a website called VIN that's a veterinary only network where we can chat and, you know, different online sources for vets to connect and this question has come up a number of times so what is entamoeba cysts in a goat fecal and do i need to worry about it in general as far as the goat is concerned the answer is no you don't need to worry about it uh there's a multitude well, maybe not a multitude, that's kind of a lot, but like there's a good handful of different entamoeba species, which are protozoan, and they are normal gut flora in ruminants. So ruminants have a lot of bugs in their rumen and lower GI, and entamoeba can absolutely be what we call a commensal, which is a normal uh non-harmful organism to the goat the the question the owner of this particular goat sorry i'm at an intersection (laughs) the owner of this particular goat had a follow-up question which was do i need to worry about the health like this affecting the my family and you know young children who you know like infants may not have a fully developed immune system anyone with any kind of immune modulated disease any human immune mediated diseases um or immune suppressing diseases or the elderly you know those those people often you know may be more susceptible to something infectious like an like a protozoan um the so I did a little bit of searching about this and the there is one species of entamoeba which is entamoeba histolytica uh, which can cause uh, diarrhea in humans and can be like a pretty profound like gastrointestinal illness so that is to be considered, I guess, but the the transmission of this to humans would be a fecal-oral transmission. Um, the other topic that came up when I was searching on this was a different protozoan, uh, Cryptosporidium, which is kind of a an ongoing or kind of like a running joke in veterinary school when vet students go to the ambulatory rotations at least in where I went to vet school ambulatory rotations are like the large animal rotations where we go out to the big cow dairies and things like that and we're palpating you know well like I was palpating like hundreds of cows because I wanted to learn some people who were going into vet school and almost near graduation and saying, well, I'm going into feline-only practice. We're less enthusiastic about sticking their arms up cows' rectums all day. But anyway, the crypto thing was kind of a joke that all the people who didn't grow up on a farm hadn't had a lot of large animal exposure potentially could get exposed to crypto and get sick from it. And there are a few people on my rotation that that happened to. And I was always 
thinking in the back of my mind, well, it'd be really embarrassing if I got crypto because, like, I was that kid that grew up in the barn and I totally didn't wash my hands before I ate lunch and I'm still that kid who's, or that adult who's out in the barn and I try to wash my hands before lunch. I definitely wash my hands more when I'm with patients. But anyway... So that's that's the kind of idea behind the gastrointestinal disease um, crypto people would be exposed to because it's fecal oral transmission. And when you're palpating a whole bunch of cows, you're going to get poop probably in your mouth. <laughs> so that's how you would get it. Um, if you have sanitary milking practices and filtering your milk and you can even be home pasteurizing your milk by heating it to 140 degrees and holding it for a half hour at that temperature and that's also going to cut down on any uh, pathogens that may be contaminated in the milk so entomeba cysts probably very 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 likely absolutely fine for the goats and kind of minimal risk as far as milk consumption for humans, but definitely be using good sanitary milking practices. Finally, the last thing I was just going to share this morning was that, as I've mentioned, my husband and I run a commercial dairy, and our mornings look something like we get up, our alarms go off at about... His goes off at about 5 a.m., mine goes off at about 5.20 a.m., and he's out of bed before me because this time of year he's up and prepping uh, for milking, so he's getting hot water going and prepping milk replacer for our kids, and so he's, like, down doing that before I am out of bed. So this morning I was just about to get out of bed and he comes up the stairs and says, our hot water heater is dead. And I was like, uh, we have a, a instant hot water heater. It's a commercial grade one because it also powers our pasteurizer. It uh, heats the water for the hot water jacket of our pasteurizer. So it's so a not inexpensive piece of equipment. I think it was like $1,800 or like $2,200 or something like that when we got it and got it installed. So he was down there. He's pretty like savvy about fixing things, which is good. I got down there and he had the front panel of it off and had figured out, got the manual out and figured out what the code was. And it was the exhaust fan. And... You know, we turned it on and the fan starting to whir to try to ignite and blow the exhaust out is making this terrible noise. So after looking at it and figuring out how to get the fan out of there, we discovered that a poor little mouse had thought it would be a great idea to crawl into the exhaust. And I don't know what the mouse thought it was doing. I don't know how it got up there. We've had this instant hot water heater for, God, like, before we upgraded to the commercial one, we even had one. It's been like eight years, and this is the first time anything like this has happened. I don't know how the little critter got in there. I felt really bad for it, but we took it out. It was deceased. But, man, I was at least we found the problem quickly 
and I was really relieved we weren't going to have to pay somebody a whole bunch of money to come install a new hot water heater but those are the kinds of things that you have to be ready to troubleshoot when you're running a farm business so uh, one last thing I wanted to ask before I say talk to you later is um, if you have a second and you can leave a review on iTunes and rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts sorry I'm never going to get that right that would be great because I guess I'm learning more about podcasting as I do this and Apple Podcasts has like an algorithm like Facebook and everything else where if more people rate and review the podcast then it's possible for more it'll show up higher on searches and it'd be really cool to like have it show up you know higher up in the searches like new and noteworthy um if you search goat on apple Podcasts right now it's all like sports stuff and i guess that has something to do with maybe tom brady i don't know i don't follow sports at all you can email me at goat.cara at gmail.com and explain that to me and i might remember it but yeah there's a lot of sportsy podcasts if you just search goat on uh Apple Podcasts. So it'd be cool if, like, you searched GOAT on Apple Podcasts and the only podcast that I know of out there that's actually about GOATs, which is this one, uh, if that came up instead of other stuff. And I think there's some music stuff on there, too. It's not about GOATs. (laughs) So if you can please take a moment on your phone or your device or your computer and rate and review that'd be awesome i'm also uploading episodes to soundcloud now so you can find me on there soundcloud is very new to me so i'm i'm figuring that out but they're they're up there and there's a link and you can also always email me with questions comments suggestions of topics at goatdoccara g-o-a-t-d-o-c-c-a-r-a at gmail.com or message me through the web- website which is goatdoc.com thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye-bye Meh.